Let us return to Paul's letter to, uh, to uh, written to the young pastor Timothy. Uh, so turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and our text will begin in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. This morning we enter into this new section that's still part of the overall thought of chapter 2. And what we are beginning to see now is instructions for worship. Instructions for worship within the local church. And this morning we will begin to see the differences and the responsibilities of men and women within that context. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner, verse 9, also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be silenced, but to be in silence. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Let us pray. Our Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray this morning that you would use your word and by the power of your spirit, you would edify and strengthen your church. We pray that you would lead us into the way of truth and that we might as your people obey it. We pray, Father, that you would use your word this morning to not only strengthen your people, but we pray for salvation to come to those that do not know you savingly. So we pray that you would strengthen and sanctify and save by your grace and for your glory. We pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. We have been in uh, chapter two for the last number of weeks. The apostle instructing the young pastor, Timothy, and Timothy, like Titus, is, we should understand, is a type of apostolic legate, apostolic representative. He has been left there in Ephesus to correct problems in the church. And we've looked at how Timothy was to confront the false teachers. He was to correct the false doctrine. And now we have moved into a section that has begun to deal with the corporate worship of the church. And so he's setting in order. He's setting in order the things that were lacking and he was to establish them. Uh, as we look at this, we should uh, be mindful of a number of issues. One, the corporate worship of the local church and the way that we worship and approach God is important to God. 
He establishes it in his word. He regulates it by his word. And though we've been looking at, in particular, worship in our prayer in general, especially prayer for all kinds, all sorts of men, for those that rule over us. And if you remember, there was an evangelistic emphasis in the way of prayer. Now we're beginning to see that the apostle begins to break down the worship aspect and he will begin to speak of gender differences. The gospel doesn't eradicate gender. Male and female are, pro are part of the created order and they continue in the life of the church and we're going to see this though our culture and though and there are many in our culture that are pushing to eradicate gender on many aspects the bible upholds this he, the bible sets forth equal worth but each are made differently according to their gender and both are made in the image and likeness of god now as we come to this section uh, many may say that what paul is about to teach here may be for some the most difficult area in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, some may see it as the most controversial part of the book of Timothy, and they may attempt to uh, interpret some of this in light of cultural concerns. But I would say that this teaching uh, that we find here concerning corporate worship of the church does not at all appear to be influenced by local uh, cultural concerns. Uh, Paul is setting forth the apostolic teaching concerning conduct in the churches. If there's any doubt, Paul makes this evident in chapter 3, and this section will move over all the way to chapter 3. And if you remember Paul's words in chapter 3, verse 15, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And so as God's people, we receive the apostolic word. We receive this as the authoritative word of God. And not only is it authoritative, but we believe it is sufficient for the life of the church. And in this case, for our worship. This is what we would say concerning the commands and the teachings of scripture concerning the regulative principle of worship. Now, again, the initial thought here, the initial thought concerning prayer took us back to verses one and two. You remember, therefore, I exert, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And so the initial thought of prayer brings us back to those opening verses. And now beginning in verse eight, the apostle moves to listen, very specific instructions for men and women concerning prayer and the corporate worship of the church. Now, the central thought, the central thought of our passage is that proper, is proper demeanor of prayer. Is that there is to be a proper demeanor in prayer. And when I say demeanor, I mean there is to be a proper inward attitude 
and a proper outward appearance. A proper inward attitude and a proper outward appearance. As we've seen in the opening verse of this chapter, God desires the assembled church to pray. And therefore the church should pray. But now we're reminded that the prayers of the church and its corporate gatherings, it is to be done with a proper attitude. Now this section... This morning and next week, we will see instructions for worship and distinctives concerning men and women. In verse 8, he will address the men. In 9 through 15, he will address the women. However, when we move into chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he'll pick up again relating to the men. Notice verse 1 of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying, if a man. And so he'll move back to the men. But he will begin in verse, uh, verse 8 with the men. Instructions for the men. And then next week, 9 through 15, instructions for the women. So let's look at instructions for the men concerning the corporate gathering of the church and, in this case, prayer. Verse 8, I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So Paul begins this section addressing the men. And the first thing he tells us, number one, in the instruction to the men and the corporate worship of the church, is that the men are to lead in prayer. The men are to lead in prayer. I desire, therefore, that the men pray. The, the, the apostle desires this. He, he's, he's instructing this. It's a command that he wants us to pray. And what's interesting, it's not just men in the sense, in the generic sense. We find the word used like that in the Bible. The word, you recognize it, anthropos. We get the, the, the study of anthropology from that. But here it has the definite article, the, and it's derived from that word anthropos, but it's anthropos or Andros. It's where my oldest son is named. Andrew. Andrew. It means a manly one. And it's typically understood as an adult male. As an adult male. Paul's point is that during the corporate gathering of the church, the worship of the church, the men are to lead in prayer rather than the women. This is because the leadership of the church are to be men. That's coming in chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying if a man desires the position of bishop or overseer, he desires a good work. So men, listen closely, men are to be leading the corporate worship of the church, and it should be the male leadership of the church specifically. Now, several of the apostolic churches were birthed, if you remember, they were birthed from the missionary labors of the apostles, and they would take place in a synagogue setting. The churches continued the same pattern as the synagogues and that only, only male leadership would pray publicly. 
You may not even realize that even, we're going to see this, even in the synagogues, they would have office of elders and deacons. And so we'll see that much of that same pattern continues, brought over from the Jewish way of life, continues in the instruction and the life of the churches. Now, as we look at this and we see that the men are to be leading this, and these are to be those men that also manage and lead their household well. In chapter 3, they're also to lead the household of God well. And so that's what we have here. The men are in leadership are to be leading the church in prayer. Now, someone may look at this immediately and want to push back and say, but what about, what about 1 Corinthians 11.5? What about 1 Corinthians 11.5? Doesn't that allow for women to pray and to teach God's word? Well, the apostle expects women to pray. And there is an aspect of teaching that women will participate in. We can see that in a number of places. And we'll discuss that next week when he talks about the women teaching here. When are when is it appropriate for a woman to teach? However, here, when we look at 1 Corinthians eleven five, 5, we need to see this in light of the instruction that he gives in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, the apostle forbids a woman to speak in the assembly of the gathered church. So we interpret 1 Corinthians eleven five in light of 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. In 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, it says, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. But they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, before some of our women may uh, rise up and this stirs them, let me remind you that not all men are to be teaching the word of God or leading the gathered church. This is primarily the responsibility of men and leadership. This is why we have chapter 3 here in 1 Timothy. So, it's not just women, but there are also men who are not to be uh, teaching in this official capacity or leading. But secondly, not only is it to be led by the men... But he says they are to pray, notice verse 8, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, or as some of your translations will say, in every place. The, the men, the men in the gathered assembly of the church are to pray everywhere the church gathers for worship, is what's being said here. Now this expression, pray everywhere or pray in every place, that expression appears four times in Paul's letters. And in each occurrence, it refers to, listen closely, it refers to a local visible assembly of the church. 
to pray everywhere in every place should also be understood in light of verse 7. In verse 7, where Paul was appointed and commissioned by Christ to be an apostle, a missionary to the nations, the Gentile nations, and establish churches in every place among the nations, among the Gentiles. Notice verse 7. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So men ought to pray everywhere. As the gospel is advancing and reaching the nations and churches are planted as commanded in the Great Commission, this is in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that the seed, the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be a blessing to all the nations. As the church militant marches with the gospel to the nations, the truth of Christ, the gospel, the glory of God is to spread among all peoples. As the prophet Habakkuk was declared in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And notice the echo, notice the echo of Malachi chapter 1, verse 11 from our present passage. Malachi 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles in every place, in every place. Incense shall be offered to my name, a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And lastly, the words of our Lord to the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember that? In John chapter 4, verse 21, where Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem worship the Father. You see, it would come to a day and a time with the death of Christ, the, the coming in of the new covenant and the spreading of the gospel to the nations. It would be not in just the temple in Jerusalem, but men everywhere would pray to God of all the nations, of all kinds of men, all peoples. Churches would be established, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles would pray. And again, remember our passage from the last few weeks in verses 1 through 5, where we are told to pray for all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles and men of high rank and men of low. As he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Again, you see the overall context of these verses begins to fall into place. Praying for all men, 
all kinds of men, the nations, and the gospel in this evangelistic prayer is to be advancing among all peoples so that local churches would be established and the triune God over all the earth would be praised and prayed to in all places are everywhere, as it says in verse 8. In Jerusalem, in Rome, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Philippi, and even Ephesus. And so the men are to lead in the corporate gatherings of the church in prayer. Everywhere the churches are established and gathered for worship. If you may not know the very idea of the church, the ecclesia, the congregation, the assembly, the purpose of the congregating is to worship God. We are gathering together to worship God. And we are a representative, a concrete representative of the church in a locale. That is the church in Rome, the church at Warrington. And so the churches gather for the express purpose of worship. Now, not only are they to pray these men everywhere in all places where the churches are established. Notice thirdly, the third thing he says to the men. They are to be lifting up holy hands, lifting up holy hands. Hmm. Now, we begin to have a, a series of three characteristics of corporate prayer here. The first is lifting up holy hands. Now, as I said at the beginning, the central thought of this verse and this entire section on corporate prayer is the proper demeanor in prayer. When I say demeanor, I mean there is to be a proper inward attitude and a proper outward appearance. However, however, the emphasis is upon the inward attitude with both the men, and we'll see next week, and the women of the congregation. Verse 8, lifting up holy hands. The example the apostle gives us, the outward manner or posture, is lifting up hands in prayer. Now, lifting up hands in prayer is not an uncommon posture in the Bible. For example, Psalm 134, verse 2. Psalm 134, verse 2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. There are numerous acceptable postures concerning or in the way of prayer in the Bible. Verse 8, this lifting up holy hands is probably someone standing in the sanctuary, someone standing in the midst of God's people leading prayer. And there's also there's also on this posture, uh, this idea that we see one is raising his hands. Uh, we can find uh, 
not only raising hands, but we can find uh, laying down, standing, kneeling, sitting. All of these are found in the Bible as acceptable postures of prayer. For instance, we find David standing and lifting hands in Psalm 134, as we've looked at already, but where it says, Behold, bless the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, who by night stand, stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And the Apostle Paul, we can find him kneeling in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Ephesians 3, verse 14. And for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, with that being said, while there are different postures that people may take when they are praying, sitting, standing, kneeling, laying, uh, and, and even, even the idea of lifting hands. We Even as often as you'll see what we think of in, in the Islamic world, where someone's on their face, uh, the, in, the ancient Hebrew people were also known to be on the ground, and they would rise up and lift their hands and pray towards Jerusalem uh, in, that, in that manner. So there are different postures now, though there are different postures, we should not think that posture doesn't matter just because there are a variety of kind. Posture is important. Listen, church, the way that we approach God is important, and it matters. The way that we speak to someone matters. When we were overseas a few years ago, we had to sit a certain way that was customary. It was very hard for me. Legs crossed on the ground. Poe thought it was somewhat funny because he knew after about 15 minutes I was done and I would get I would squirm and he'd put his hand over on me and go hang in there but one of the things he'd have to remind me is as I was squirming I would have a tendency to turn my feet and turning the bottom of your feet to people and that that part of Asia was considered offensive you didn't show the bottom of your feet Ever since then, I, I've had a tendency to think of coming before God, and I have a tendency to put both my feet solid on the ground. So my feet are, I don't want to show God the bottom of my feet. This is a subconscious thing that's happened with me. And that's probably appropriate. We, I don't think we should be praying in such a casual way that my legs are crossed or that I'm slouching. I'm kicked back in a lazy boy chair and act as if approaching God is of no importance. I should take it serious. I'm coming to God. I wouldn't dare speak to my father, who's now passed away, but I wouldn't have spoken to him that way in such a posture. I wouldn't speak to the governor or the president of the United States in such a manner. How much more should I honor God with, the, with my posture that it reflects this outwardness, reflects something that's inside of me, does it not? 
The outward demeanor expresses something about my inward attitude toward God, does it not? And we should consider this in light of our corporate gathering. And Paul's even going to eventually come to the, he's going to begin to address uh, outward dress and even jewelry and so forth, as we'll see next week. But our posture communicates something. But notice in verse 8, it is holy hands, holy hands lifted up. We pray to our God in his holy sanctuary. I'm not talking about this sanctuary, I'm not talking about this building, his holy sanctuary. We come to him by the spirit, in the spirit. He comes near to us. We come near to him. And it is a holy moment when we worship and come to God. It is in the language of the psalmist when he speaks of lift your hands in the sanctuary. And while the immediate meaning is, meaning is the temple, we know that those of us in the new covenant, that God dwells, God dwells in heaven above on high. We approach him there where he dwells and he comes near to us. And it's his sanctuary. And he is thrice holy. Listen again to the psalmist in Psalm 28, 2. When I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. The men of the church, the leadership of the church that leads the church in prayer are to be men that are set apart, ordained to the work they meet the qualifications of chapter 3. They meet those qualifications. They've been set apart. Verse 8 is echoing Psalm 24. Listen to Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Not just leadership, though that's the focus here. Or that may be the focus. All men are to approach God with holy hands. And that we are to be men that turn away from sin and that pursue holiness. The hands lifted up by all men are to be hands of men of integrity and faith. Faith. And so they are to lift holy hands toward God. Now, fourthly, he says, without wrath or doubting, 
Here's that string of three. Holy hands and then without wrath and doubting. The men of prayer are to have a proper inward demeanor. An inward demeanor, a proper attitude. They are to be engaging in prayer without wrath and doubting or, or anger. And without doubting. If you see this now in context, the church at Ephesus, I just wonder because the church at Ephesus was going through going through difficulties. There were false teachers, false doctrines were spreading, and Timothy was to set things in order. However, while the church was to pray, their prayers were not to reflect personal anger, bitterness, and to be argumentative. That is, these areas of bitterness in the life of the church were not to enter into the life of of their public prayers. So we may have something here, but it is to be without wrath, without anger, and without doubting, without being double-minded, maybe, as James would tell us. Listen to the word words of James. James 4, out, 4 8. James 4 8. Draw near to God, and he would draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. James 4, 8. So we have a string here of things commanded that the men in the church, in every church, found in everywhere, in every place, are to pray. And they are to be men that are of integrity, men of faith. They are to be men in pursuit of holiness. They are to be lifting up holy hands they are to be praying without wrath and doubting. Now, some closing application here. Just the men today, because there was so much in the following verses concerning the women, but now the men. One, let us all remember, men and women, the danger here that we should remember that though we have an outward we have an outward demeanor that's given to us. Let's be careful of the danger of just some kind of rote formalism. Only a proper outward demeanor without the proper inward attitude. We know the deadliness of that. It's not just going through the outward motions, right? It's not just the, the working of the work, as some traditions would say, right? And secondly... Not only should there be an outward demeanor that's proper, but, and, but an inward attitude that is proper, that we should remember that as a people, we are to be humble in our prayer. Our prayer should be biblically directed. And we have that great warning that's given to us by our Lord concerning the prayers. You remember of, in that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Listen to this. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of, of all that I possess. Verse 13, And the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, I tell you this man went down, Jesus said, to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so all of us, the entire congregation, all men, leadership and all men, and all of us in our prayers, we are to come to God humbled, recognizing our sin and guilt, our great need of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we come to God. We come to him through the goodness and grace that he has shown us in the gospel. We have a command here. We have a command to obey here. We have an example and instructions given to us, an apostolic word and how we are to conduct ourselves in worship. And we are to obey this command. But we have not only the command, the law, the, the instruction of the apostle given to us, but we're reminded this morning of the good news. That when we do pray, when we do come to God, when we do gather together, we gather together to worship God because he has redeemed us by the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have holy hands only because of the shedding of the blood of the son. We can only come to God because of the one mediator. You remember these verses? For there is one mediator. Verse 5. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, he says, as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so we have instruction from the apostle to obey that which is to be implemented in the life of the church and our corporate worship. But there is also not only a command to obey there is a gospel here to be believed and received that is the promises of God. That is how we come to God in prayer. It is through the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through his life, the ransom that he gave, the shedding of his blood for our sins that we have access and we can come to God in prayer in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there is a gospel to be received and believed. If you're here this morning apart from Christ, if you're here this morning and you have never received Christ, confessing your sins, turning from your sins and rebellion to God and trusting and believing in Christ by faith and faith alone and the shedding of the blood of the Son of God on the cross who was buried and also risen from the dead and received by faith and faith alone. Turn to him and be saved. Turn to him and have your sins washed away. Turn to him and receive him as redeemer and mediator to bring you and to give you access to God. And this morning as we come to the table, as God's people, we're reminded 
through the bread and through the wine, the bread, his broken body, through the cup, his shed blood, and the cup that he drank of God's wrath for us that believe. And as we come to the table, we come eating and drinking, but we come by faith, receiving the promises and this good gift from God, the promises of the new covenant, life and forgiveness. Let us pray.